Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. This is where you'll find nationally recognized celebrity chefs, food artisans, authors, experts, and visionaries who love food, travel, and living the best life. And every food topic is on the table here with recipe inspiration, holiday planning, wine and cocktail pairings, cooking techniques, and much more shared all throughout this hour. So if you love to cook or love to eat, stay tuned because it is my goal to fill your plate. I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. So let's get to eating, shall we? Today, I thought I would share some insight and inspiration on salt blocks. I was speaking just a couple of few weeks ago at a women's conference, and during the Q&A session, we embarked on a conversation about salt, and then, of course, it led to salt blocks. I happen to love my salt blocks. Do you have one? I use them for everything from serving sashimi or crudo to using it as a brick on my barbecue. And so if you have one or you want to learn more about them, here is your salt block tutorial. Himalayan salt is a rock salt and it's mined from what they say is 500 million year old salt deposits. The salt is very pure, it's unadulterated, and it's mined in large boulders, and then they cut it or they grind it to the necessary dimensions from, let's say, a massive salt block platter, which you can buy, to powder fine finishing salt. And salt block cooking is all the rage. It's the new it thing to have for those who want to be a culinary hero. And there's something really impressive about bringing out your salt block to serve on or using it to infuse fabulous flavor. Now, salt comes in, of course, the numerous different grinds that you can buy at your gourmet food store, even your supermarket. But salt also comes in blocks and plates and platters and bricks. And you can use it for sauteing and grilling and chilling and curing and baking and salting and plating. That should cover it all. Now, the salt block itself almost has a very crystal look to it. Um, like if you were to have a crystal that gave off good vibes, not crystal as in your glassware. And it has a very specific energy. And so it holds almost any temperature that you bring it to for a really long while, which is really wonderful, by the way. Now, due to its lack of moisture, you can actually safely heat it or chill it to virtually any extreme. So salt blocks have been tested from zero degrees Fahrenheit up to 900 degrees Fahrenheit, which I think is totally fascinating. Now, here are a couple of important facts about a salt block that you will want to know. Using a salt block to season food, it really adds a minimal amount of saltiness. So it's nothing to be worried about. If you compare it, let's say, to ground up salt, it has a higher quantity, because it's in a block, of trace minerals, calcium, potassium, magnesium. And so it gives you sort of a milder taste or a milder saltiness compared to using ground 
salt. And you get this level of flavor and sort of complexity that's outrageously scrumptious. Now, you're armed with the knowledge that you need a salt block, but what are a few things that you can use it for? Well, you can always arrange thinly sliced carpaccio or sashimi on a cold salt platter and serve it at the table. And it's amazing because the food is literally salt cured while you watch. So it cooks the edges, essentially like ceviche, uh, which is done by acid. Um, and it brings on a little bit of that mineral rich saltiness. I think it's a fabulous way to serve sashimi. And again, just chill the salt block down in your fridge before using it. Now, you can also place a salt block under your broiler. You wait about 30 minutes and then you remove the salt block or the tile with a heavy kitchen glove and you set it on a trivet at the table and you can actually cook on the salt block. It's pretty awe-inspiring, in fact. I think it's really fabulous. And the food takes on a very light, again, subtle saltiness. Now, I like to use my salt block on my barbecue, my Twin Eagles barbecue to be exact. I am a Twin Eagles barbecue fan, but all of you loyal listeners know that I do think it's the best barbecue on the market. I use my salt block for spatchcocked chicken on the grill. So you know when you cut out the backbone of a whole chicken, what you get is a whole chicken lying flat. And if you put it skin side down on the grill after you've marinated it in something totally yummy like lemon juice and olive oil and salt and pepper and lots of chopped garlic or your marinade of choice, you put it skin side down on the grill and usually you'd use a regular old brick to lay it down or a cast iron skillet. But I will say using a salt block gives you that crisp, delicious skin and it infuses fabulous flavor. Now, I've seen a chef friend place their salt block on a backyard barbecue and then cook a stuffed trout right on top, which looked really fabulous and I have to try. Now on the wilder side, I read a suggestion online for heating a large salt block on a gas grill and then buttering it and then putting bananas on top of it and uh, just grilling the bananas. And then they turn off the grill, very important, and they douse it with bourbon and they flambe it. Okay, that might be the best bananas foster anywhere. Then you serve it with a scoop of vanilla bean ice cream. Now, you can freeze your salt block for a couple of hours, and then you can plate up scoops of ice cream or sorbet. And then getting back to the basics, you can always use it as a serving platter for butter or cheeses or dried meats or your daily dose of pickled ginger and wasabi alongside sushi. Pretty cool, right? And then lastly, with kudos to Jill, whom I met at the women's conference in Fort Wayne, Indiana, a great cook. She told me she slices her tomatoes on a salt block, and I think that's just brilliant. So with all that said, I suggest that you invest in a salt block to add fabulous flavor and creativity to your dishes, and you'll have it for a long time, by the way, because they seem to last forever. All you do to clean a salt block is use a scrubber sponge and warm water, then you pat it dry with a paper towel and you're good to go. I would love to know how you use your salt block, so please email me at jamie at chefjamie.com, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com with your best inspiration. And then, of course, we have a little time left for food news. This is what will keep you, the fabulous foodie, in the know. 
College students notoriously enjoy drinking beer, right? But some students hope to translate that love of brews into a career. Well, the craft brewing industry has grown substantially over the past decade, and the college officials are taking notice. I read this past week that schools are catering to that trend of craft beer, and there are five schools across the country that will allow you to turn your taste for fine brews into a career. Really incredible. University of California at Davis, Oregon State University, Central Washington University, Appalachian State University, and San Diego State University. Thank you for making great brewmasters. And then I have a little bit of heart-stopping news for you. Get ready, because a Canadian restaurant chain has introduced a hefty half-pound patty topped with bacon, crispy onion strings, and wait for it, crumbled Reese's peanut butter cups. And that's not all. The burger itself is stuffed with a peanut butter cup before it's cooked. It's called the Works Gourmet Burger Bistro. They have 26 restaurants scattered across Ontario. They're known for their over-the-top burger creations. Chocolate and peanut butter on a burger. I say strange. Some say delicious. I don't know. There's more food news every Sunday in your radio to make you a culinary hero, of course. And there are a few things you won't want to miss, by the way, at chefjamie.com. My weekly dish is a 15-minute lasagna, because we're getting into that busy season, aren't we? Oh, a new cocktail. I will tell you, I drank a couple this past week. They're pretty fabulous. It's an apple cider Moscow mule for all of you mule fans. Plus, my pumpkin spice white chocolate chip cookie recipe has been shared. Check it out, chefjamie.com. And don't touch your dial, because... We have an illustrious list of guests coming up. Master Chef Judge Graham Elliott is stopping by next, sharing his new cookbook and his family meals. Plus, we're talking about the virtues of chickpea flour. And author Francis Dinkelspiel is sharing the true story of an arsonist in the vineyards of California. The book is entitled Tangled Vines, and it was a great read. I'm really looking forward to sharing her story with you. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Don't touch your dial. We'll be right back. It's delicious. It's divine. It's food and wine. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. As you've heard me say before, we do have the greatest culinary thinkers on this show. And just for the record, I'm a Graham Elliott fan. I had the privilege of meeting this crazy chef when I had the wonderful opportunity to be a chef judge on Master Chef last season. It's his jovial personality that shines through. His food is Michelin starred, and everybody loves Graham Elliott's Bistro in Chicago. Well, his first cookbook has just released, and the food world is celebrating. It's called Cooking Like a Master Chef, and it is a book tailored for every cook, as Graham says, to grow your confidence in the kitchen. He is the Master Chef co-host and host of the Food Network new show called Craziest Restaurants in America, and he is here. I am delighted to welcome Graham Elliott to the show. Hey, Graham, how are you? I am doing incredible. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Yes, of course. Congratulations on the book. 
I think it really, yes, I think it gives us some new insight into getting to know you better. It's very personal to me, and the recipes, of course, look scrumptious. Well, I appreciate that. I think that was what was really important to, to get across to people, just like in cooking. You know, it's finding your own voice, getting your personality uh, yes. across. So to do that in book form, you know, you kind of go the super professional French laundry style of, you know, <laughs> point one teaspoon of this with one ounce of that, or the way that you, you know, you cook and you, you live life, which in my style, it's like everything's gray area. There's no black or white or real right or wrong. So, you know, maybe if you're making the dish in the winter, go braised meat. If it's in the summer, do grilled or you know, if you're feeling crazy, make a tartare. Like, it doesn't really matter. So hmm. I think that that's one thing that you, you know, you take away from the book, which is fun. Oh, definitely so. Do you mind that people call you quirky? I mean, I think it's a compliment, but I think it's a, a, a testament, really, to who and what you are. You have a tremendous love and talent for music. You intertwine it with your boys and your family, with your cooking. Like you said, you sort of break the box and, and cook outside the lines. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I say if it's not broken, break it. You there know, you like, if, if we're lucky... With the world being six billion years old, you know, like a drop in the bucket. If we're lucky, we get to be to a hundred. Mm-hmm. So you know, like to to take advantage every day of whatever it is that you found, you know, fell in love with. In my instance, cooking. You can connect to regions, geography, religions, upbringings, you know, uh, seasons, everything, and cook a carrot in a hundred different ways based on where you're at or what the weather's like. So I think. You, you get deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole when it comes to cooking. So this cookbook is kind of what I feel like I'm making right now, but maybe in a year it'll be different. Maybe sure. five years from now I'll go to Japan and only want to, you know, work with certain products from there. Who knows? That's mm. what makes the, the journey so fun. Yeah, th- I agree with you. Definitely so. And I love that... Um speaking of old age and long lives, that you uh, allude to living to 100. I, I think... Uh, many of us food lovers and those that watch you and love MasterChef have watched your transformation. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention your tremendous weight loss. You are living your best life now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've, I've had uh, weight issues for most of my adult life. I, you know, my dad was in the Navy. We moved uh, every two years. I went to, to three high schools and, mm. and all 50 states. So I think food was that friend that was always there, especially in stressful times and then as a chef you're surrounded by it 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 almost becomes accepted like well you know you're you can't trust a skinny chef you got to eat some good stuff but having three boys and getting to the part where i couldn't even get off the bench to play with them or have fun with them or do anything and just Mm -hmm. exhausted feeling horrible about myself um you know it was time for that life change so how did you do it remind uh, those that don't know yeah well i mean after having 50 gym memberships and 100 trainers and still not getting results, I said, I don't care if I have to cut my own stomach off tomorrow, whatever it is, or if I'm not a chef anymore, I don't care. I need to do this. So I went and uh, uh, had a procedure called a sleeve where they make your stomach smaller, but you can still eat everything and be a chef and taste everything, just not large amounts. And uh, I started running and going to the gym. I ran a marathon last October. And now I'm down from 400 pounds to 250. Incredible. So it's like taking three 50-pound sacks of flour off my, my shoulders, you know, my sure. knees feel better, just, just everything. It's wonderful to see the pictures in the book and see you playing with the boys. 
It's it's really lovely, yeah. Um, okay, so speaking of um, food obsession, because there's no doubt, I mean, we need to believe in and understand everything in moderation in this country, no doubt, um, but we want to better get to know you, and I know you haven't given up your love of food, so do you have a, a current uh, autumn food obsession? Is there a hot sauce or a seasoning that's your go-to? Give us a little insight into Graham Elliott today. Yeah, you know, it's funny, like, I... I try to eat healthier, focus on proteins, all that stuff. But still, um, just like somebody that was probably an ex-smoker, drinker, whatever, you're, you're still surrounded by these things that you want to try, mm-hmm. especially as a chef, you know, going to restaurants and surrounding yourself with stuff. And every chef or foodie I know that's been to Europe, you kind of plan your day, like, I'm going to have this for breakfast, but for snack, I'm going to have these <laughs> kind of cured meats. And for lunch, we got to go hit this place that does this kind of cheese. Right. So, you know, you're always doing that. But you know, my things going in the fall, I, I always find myself going, like, to to the Eastern Bloc, you know, and looking mm-hmm. at, like, braised cabbage and potatoes and mm. root vegetables and pickling and, uh, you know, braising cabbage with caraway and beer. Those are a lot of the things I gravitate towards this season. Okay, they all sound delicious to me, as do curried corn nuts. Okay, I want to get to the recipes in the book. And by the way, if you just tuned in, you are late because Graham Elliott is here and he is cooking like the master chef that he is. The new cookbook, the first cookbook released from uh, the Graham Elliott empire is called Cooking Like a Master Chef. And on page five, evidently I couldn't get past page five, Graham, I found curried corn nuts. And I think that um, Sunday football could be made better with just this one recipe. Yeah. You know, I think at the end of the day, we all want to just make Super Bowl food. Yes, you know? thank like, you. How can things that you sit, hopefully keep a bowl of on your stomach as you watch the right, game. Right, that's so, right. <laughs> so I think the curry corn nuts, you know, curry is gorgeous. It's a, it's a mixture of so many different spices and sweet mm. and savory and smoky. So I make my little curry deal. The corn nuts, you just, you know, you toss them in there, you get that fragrance. They're spicy, salty, mm. uh, just a, a delicious way to, it's like the gateway drug into Indian food. Yes, so there we go. You get an appreciation <laughs> for it, you try it out, then maybe you go, you go uh, a little more hardcore and start doing some stews and everything else. Okay, maybe uh, the kabuka squash soup with the toasted pepitos. What a beautiful presentation, by the way. Um, served in the squash, like as a bowl and just roasted. So you get the textural dichotomy, right, of the roasted squash and then the the luxurious, elegant uh, texture yeah. of the soup. Silky, Silky. And, and rough. Yeah, I think that nice. what I try to teach my cooks and then I guess through, through them to, to the public at large is to utilize everything that nature gives you. And people talk mm-hmm. about nose-to-tail cooking, where, okay, I'm going to use the, the pig, and I'm going to, you know, roast the bones and make this and cure that and smoke that. But same thing with the vegetables. So if I'm given a pumpkin or a squash, you can use the flesh to make the soup. You can use the outside to hold the soup. You can yes. take the seeds and toast it. Even the guts from that pumpkin you scoop out when you make a jack-o'-lantern, cook it down with some garlic and shallot and herbs and make a pumpkin stock so that when you make a soup or anything else, you're using that pumpkin-y flavored liquid instead of just, you know, oh, chicken stock or, or anything else. So, so smart. Um, yeah, I love that idea. You know, onions, all the onion peels and the root parts on the bottom, like, you know, use those things somehow and make a broth and fortify it mm. so it tastes more oniony. Yeah. Um, that's what's, you know, great about what nature gives you. Levels of flavor. I'm um, seeing that Thanksgiving is quickly approaching. 
Um, you're a wild turkey fan, and I like that you clarify in the book. You mean the bird, not the bourbon, right? Correct. Yes. Correct. <laughs> um, but that makes a really, if anyone, as you say, has ever had a wild turkey, that makes a really, truly delicious, like, true to Thanksgiving meal. There's nothing more authentic. Exactly. It connects you to what's around. I hope that you'll come back and share more fabulous food with us. Congratulations on the new cookbook. Um, and thank you for sharing your passion, Graham. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you so of much course. for letting me. Yes, most certainly. The book is called Cooking Like a Master Chef, just released. The first cookbook from Graham Elliott. He wants you to push up your sleeves and get some good food on the table. There's an excerpted recipe at chefjamie.com with a direct link to the Amazon page to add the book to your collection. And you can always follow Graham at grahamelliot.com with more fabulous food in your radio right after this. Don't go away. This is your culinary playground every Sunday. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. So garbanzo beans or chickpeas are one of the creamiest and tastiest beans in my opinion. And flour made from this delicious bean lends a really rich flavor to savory and sweet dishes. It's also naturally gluten-free. So if there was one food trend that I could forecast for you for 2016, chickpea flour would be the it ingredient. Well, the chickpea flour cookbook is the first book dedicated to this versatile and nutritious pantry staple. And the author, Camilla Salisbury, is here to dish all about it. Hi, Camilla. Hi, Jamie. <laughs> wow, what an intro. Thank you. Yes, of course. I'm glad to have you. Um, oh, it's I'm thrilled to be on. I was really excited as well to see the release of your book because there are a lot of virtues to chickpea flour. Tell us, if you would please, about them both nutritionally and gastronomically. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, is that it's um, naturally gluten-free. It's um, it's really inexpensive. Mm -hmm. um, you can get it for as little as $2 a pound, especially if you're going to um, an Asian market or Middle Eastern market. Um, it's so simple to use. You don't have to use crazy gums and additives like other gluten-free flours. And then in terms of its nutritional profile, it is just off the charts. It's high in protein, high in um, fiber, it's high in folate, potassium, vitamins B6, you name it. It's it's pretty much got it. So it's got it all. Yeah. It really does. It's just a great ingredient to add to your pantry. There's so much you can do with it. As far as substituting it for, let's say, a traditional all-purpose or even a gluten-free flour substitute, which, mind you, you're right, they tend to be really pricey when those nouveau flours, you could call them, are being milled or ground for you. The the bag is definitely costly, um, so I want to talk about how you can make your own chickpea flour as well, um, but as far as substituting proportionally, is it equal proportions, equal parts? 
No, it's a little bit less, and it depends on what you're making. But okay. for traditional um, quick breads and cookies, things of that nature, um, you you want to use a little bit more liquid and also decrease the quantity of um, the flour slightly. And it'll just vary a little bit by recipe. Um, so, yeah, definitely a little bit little bit less. A little it, bit less. It is, okay. it is more absorbent than some other flowers. But what's great here is because it's so high in protein, it has um, an excellent structure that's, that is similar to um, all-purpose flour that you don't get with other gluten-free flours. So it does hold up beautifully in a, a wide range of baked goods. So that's, that's really exciting. It is, no doubt. So if you can buy it in a bag, we know it's uh, definitely cheap. Um, but if you wanted if you wanted to make it yourself, you certainly could. You can, and it's so simple. Um, so just get, it, it, chickpea flour is just uh, ground up dried chickpeas. So avoid the cans of chickpeas, go to the dried bean section and grab a bag of um, the dried chickpeas or garbanzo beans, and you can grind it in several ways. You can, if you happen to have a high-speed blender, um, you can add them to that. You can grind a whole, the whole bag at once, practically, and it grinds up in a matter of seconds. Um, but if you don't have one of those, a simple um, coffee coffee mill that costs ten to twelve dollars, right. those work so well. If you're using one for spices. Just add about a quarter of a cup at a time, and that will yield about a third to a half a cup of flour, and it takes seconds. So a great way to experiment with chickpea flour without, literally without investing um, very much money at all. For sure. And do you keep it, of course, airtight, preferably in a resealable plastic bag. You keep it in the dry pantry. There's so much conversation about storage today, and I talk about it a lot. I mean, there are certain things that are better kept in the freezer. Uh, there are certain things, dry, dark, and cool, that hold up better. Um, but where do you store yours? Um, definitely the dry, dark, and cool. You okay. unlike um, grain flours, you don't have to refrigerate um, chickpea, chickpea flour, flour. Uh, right? So as long as it's airtight and um, out of a, out of the direct heat, yes, um, absolutely, it will keep for um, up to a year. Talk about, if you would, the flavor profile as well, because I have a sweet palate. They say that most women tend to skew more toward the sweeter side of the of the palate itself. Um, and I love that. It's not sweet, sugary sweet, but I love the, the subtle sweetness that chickpea flour imparts. I've tasted it. I haven't really taken uh, advantage of an opportunity to bake with it, but you've inspired me and so I will. Um, but at a tasting, I dip my finger in it, you know, and you get that subtle, it, it's, it's, uh, it's sweeter than savory, I should say. I love hearing you say that because I, I, I'm with you all the way. And you, you, wow, you have a great palate. Um, it does because it's so almost buttery yes. tasting. Oh, so yes, it's texturally but, right, right. And affected. when it's ground so fine, it does. I, I, it carries as a result. It carries sweet flavors so well. So I find that you can decrease the amount of sugar in recipes, and it. It, it works incredibly well with uh, the really chickpea smart. flour. But at the same time, it works. It's a great flavor in all of your savory preparations because once it's um, heated, once it's toasted, it, it has that nutty sweetness that you associated with a wide range of nuts and other seeds. 
Yeah, I, I love that idea of combining and building levels of flavor. And when the flour itself, different than all purpose, which is a neutral essentially, when you add a, a flavorful component as the base, then you really do get to compound the, the richness. Oh, that's so true. So when you think about flavors, uh, for example, chocolate, which has so much complexity and earthiness, Combining cocoa powder or chocolate with a chickpea flour is just mm. out of this world. So I have a simple brownie recipe, for example, in here. But using the chickpea flour in it, first of all, I'm able to decrease the sweetness slightly. And that brings out all the nuances of, of the, the chocolate, chocolate and cocoa in ways you never would imagine. Love it. We'll take a quick pause when we return. More on the virtues of chickpea flour. Don't go away. We're dishing with Camilla Salisbury on chickpea flour. I can see it being a perfect pairing to pumpkin and all the fall flavors oh, yes. that we're Spices, loving right now. Yes. Molasses, yes. And I was very excited to see pumpkin spice waffles. That might be the first thing I make because I do believe everything waffles. Oh, Use I my waffle that, yeah. iron for lots of good stuff. But you use chickpea flour and pumpkin pie spice and a good pumpkin puree and coconut uh, you use coconut sugar, right? And you make this wonderful waffle batter. Oh, it's so simple to make. I mean, really, you don't have to beat the eggs separately or anything. You just um, mix it all together on buttermilk, too, to sort of counter all of the spice and the, the nuttiness. Um, it's nice. just poured into the waffle machine and you're ready to go. Though, again, the pumpkin that chickpea flour brings out other dimensions of the pumpkin that are really special. But at the same time, if you're serving it to someone who has no clue that they're eating chickpea flour, they're only going to think, this is the best waffle I think I've ever had, had in a long time. <laughs> right, right, right. What's so special about this? Maybe it's just the pumpkin, but wow, it tastes great. Texturally, do you get a little bit more on the tongue because you're grinding from a dried uh bean itself, even if you get a dust, you still have, I don't want to relate it to cornmeal, but you still get a, a, a textural richness. Yes? I, I think so. And again, it's that sort of buttery quality. It's yes. very, I would say very different from nice. cornmeal in that sense. Um, it's, it's not grainy. It's, right. Not grainy at all. In fact, incredibly smooth. So mm. very velvety Silky. texture. But mm. yeah, I, I do agree that it's, it's a richness that you don't get with a grain flour. Camilla Salisbury says you can say hello to the flower of your dreams, chickpea flour. Made from finely ground dried chickpeas is the total package. It is gluten-free, it is grain-free, it is low glycemic, and exceptionally high in protein, fiber, and iron. So why aren't you cooking with it? You will find 80-plus recipes using chickpea flour to power every meal of the day in the new release from Camilla Salisbury. It's S-A-U-L-S-B-U-R-Y, writer, recipe developer, and creator of the healthy food blog called 
power hungry. I'm really inspired. And I thank you for sharing your passion and the beauty of chickpea flour. And I hope you'll come back as you develop new recipes and share them with us uh, for the holiday season. Camilla. I, I would love to. Thank Terrific. you so much. It's my pleasure. I, thank what you. What a thrill to be on your show. Well, thank you. And a delight to have you as well. As the delicious conversation continues, you can find an excerpted recipe from the chickpea flour cookbook posted at chefjamie.com with a direct link so that you can order the book and bring it into your home kitchen. Chef Jamie Gwen, we'll be right back. Delivering the world of food and wine directly to your radio. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen. On October 12th, 2005, a massive fire broke out in the Wine Central Wine Warehouse in Vallejo, California. Within hours, the flames had destroyed 4.5 million bottles of California's finest wine worth more than $250 million. It was the largest destruction of wine in history. But sadly, Mark Anderson was not the first to harm the industry. In her new book, Frances Dinkelspiel looks beneath the casually elegant veneer of California's wine regions to find the obsession, the greed, and the violence that is lying in wait. Frances is an award-winning journalist and the author of Towers of Gold, which was a San Francisco Chronicle bestseller and named Best Book of the Year. She writes extraordinary prose, and both my husband Craig and I were truly drawn to the book, I should say, for our love of food and wine, um, but found it so fascinating and so gripping. The book is entitled Tangled Vines. It is a fabulous read, and Francis Dinkelspiel is here to dish. I'm glad to have you, Francis. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. Of course. would you give us a little bit of background, please? Um, your your writing is, to me, very gripping, um, and it's uh, it's an incredibly bizarre story in that it's almost hard to believe. But there's been a lot of violence related to the wine industry. Something as beautiful as wine, very much entangled in this, you know crazy greed murder obsession so yes so i uh, the book centers around this fire that you described um but it also goes back to the early days of the california wine business and in doing research for the book i was really surprised to find myself just the the the, the depth of the greed and violence that was um entwined with the California wine industry from a very early uh, time. You know, even from its start, it was uh, racked by violence because Father Unipro Serra uh, brought uh, grape cuttings up from Baja, California, and he had the uh, Indian converts at the missions plant the grapes and harvest the grapes and make the wine. And uh, these Native Americans were uh, sort of forced to remain on the mission system uh, once they come in. And, and this whole relationship of, um, you know, these Native Americans being forced to work against their will continued past Father Unipro Serra for, for decades and decades um, and into, you know, the early California era of the winemaking business. 
So that was something I was really surprised to find out about, that you know, this, this indentured servitude of Native Americans was integral to making wine in California. Right. And, th- and there are other examples of that in the book that I discuss. Yeah, I think that the history and your research is extraordinary. Um, I was very fascinated as well to find that you have a very personal connection to the story. In fact, um, dating back to 1875, your great-grandfather, right, Isaiah Hellman, whom you write about in your previous award-winning novel, um, was some somehow connected with regard to the oldest vineyards in California, right? So um, when the fire uh, destroyed all those bottles in 2005, um, it turned out that uh, about 175 bottles of port in Angelica that had been made by Isaiah Hellman, my ancestor, had burned up. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I went on a quest to try to understand better what had been lost. Was it just some liquid? Was it this family heirloom, or what was it? And I started to research the history of the Cucamonga Vineyard, which is in San Bernardino County, um, and that's where the bottles came from. And I found that the Cucamonga Vineyard really, in many ways, was a reflection of the history of California. Uh, the you know used to be uh, habitated by uh, Native American Cucamonga Indians, and then um, a Californio, a man who was a former mayor of Los Angeles, was given a land grant uh, for 13,000 acres out there, and he planted grapes in 1839, and the land was later acquired by a man named John Rains, who was a Confederate sympathizer. Yes. Now. Much of Southern California was in favor of the Confederacy during the Civil War, which people don't know. Um, and Rains was murdered for his land, and then it was taken over by Hellman. And um, so sort of very, in every different phase of the vineyard's history, uh, it related to a bigger picture of what was happening in California. Thank you for writing a wonderful read. It is um, no doubt a, a page-turner um, and one that we really, truly enjoyed. Thank you for having yes, me. Yes, congratulations to you. The book is entitled Tangled Vines. Grab it. It will keep you, no doubt, uh, connected beginning to end, um, and you will need a glass of wine. So that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation. I will remind you of what I think is my best food philosophy, and that is flavor and freshness are paramount and ingredients count. If you're looking for holiday inspiration, please check out chefjamie.com and touch base on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen for daily shameless updates on what I am cooking and eating. I'll leave you with my last bite, my last ounce of culinary conversation for the hour. I think it's the best idea for fall festivities. It's a pumpkin keg. Yes, you heard me right. A pumpkin kegger. You can actually pay proper homage to the season by featuring a pumpkin keg at all of your fall fiestas. And all you need is a pumpkin. Uh, Seemingly appropriate, since you might have one left over from Halloween, right? By the way, it needs to be a whole pumpkin, fully intact, not one that you cut eyes and a mouth out already from. Now, you do cut the top as if you were to clean out the pumpkin and you hollow it out. And then you'll need to buy an inexpensive spigot from a restaurant supply store, just a couple of bucks, like the black plastic one you would use on a commercial coffee maker. And you'll cut a small hole to insert the spigot about two inches from the bottom of the pumpkin. 
And then you fill the pumpkin with beer or punch. And I guarantee you will be a culinary hero because there is something truly fabulous about a pumpkin keg. I'll post pictures and a tutorial on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Once again, at Chef Jamie Gwen, and you will be serving from a pumpkin keg in no time. I hope you'll join me here next Sunday when the delicious conversation continues. Until then, I thank you for listening. Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I hope you continue to eat well. Well.